How you guys doing, Chinya Magic family? It's your host, Mark Karaki. Excited to bring you yet another episode of the podcast. This week, I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with Mr. Timothy Newey, CEO and co-founder at Finclusion Group, Cape Town-based fintech venture builder. Fascinating story. Tim and his co-founder and the team in, in Cape Town are taking a very differentiated approach to fintech venture building. They are taking a private equity acquisition and turnaround strategy that is focused on digitizing and modernizing existing traditional financial services businesses and turning them around into efficient lending machines. A very unique approach at scaling fintech venture in Africa and in emerging markets for that matter. This is a fantastic podcast, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. Expect quite a few technical details in terms of how to build a lending business and the relationship between that and equity. Fantastic podcast. Hello, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's, uh, we're excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have this as well. So Tim Nui, founder and CEO of Inclusion Group. I um, was looking at what you guys do and I have a perspective in terms of what I think it is, but I also would love to hear your perspective. So the, my take on what you guys do is basically a private equity play, acquisition, turnaround strategy, focused on digitizing and modernizing traditional financial services. Because I was looking at what you guys do and you, you do this turnaround move where you introduce technology to traditional financial services businesses. And that some seemed to me like a, it's not a startup play. It's more of a, almost like a private equity growth strategy or turnaround strategy, as you guys call it. How far off the mark am I or how close am I? So I think so that's very much our entry strategy. So at the end of the day, we believe we can really build a scalable platform offering basic financial services on the continent. So if we today look in, in Africa, we see a lot of people offering exciting mobile phone apps, but the reality is that most consumers in Africa still are actually using USD rails. And even if they have smartphones, a big question is, well, how many megabytes is this app? Because my phone's almost full and I'd rather have more WhatsApp capacity or Facebook than, you know, install a financial services app. So our true belief is that digital is key, but it needs to be delivered on, on low data chain. And I think in scaling that though, that's probably where we're different. We believe that if we basically go in through a acquisition strategy where we buy a business, transform it, then that can give us a quicker route to market. We basically sometimes buy talents, buy a license, buy an existing client base. We can then, you know, basically build from and scale up from, because the reality in Africa is that. If you really want to scale today, you need to run a hybrid strategy, meaning part mm -hmm. digital and part physical. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's sometimes quicker to actually acquire that physical. We did that successfully in Kenya and South Africa, and we're still looking to do that in other markets. In Tanzania, we actually went in Greenfield because we couldn't find a target we liked, and, and we're really excited about the Tanzanian market. So I guess we, we take a pragmatic approach and then really follow a buy and build strategy to build a platform. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I have a lot of questions about how you got to that, but let's talk a little bit more about who you are and, and you know, that more interesting stuff about your persona. So Dutchman in Cape Town, it's nothing new, but it seems like you came late to the party here. Where did you grow up and, and how did you end up in Cape Town doing what you do right now? Sure. I grew up and studied in the Netherlands and in Maastricht and I, I worked in Germany, London, Dubai. I started working in Africa in 2010, uh, which was with a German company called African Development Corporation. We bought banks on the continent, most notably invested in, in Bank ABC. 
And then in 2014, we sold ADC and ABC to both Diamonds and Masmara, which was a great transaction for us. I think a lot of us didn't per se sign up to subsequent strategy and, and left at that stage. Different people went on to do different things. I myself, I joined a company called Getbox, uh, which later became MyBox, which was a micro lender in South Africa and Kenya at the time, really with a mission to grow its footprint on the continent and get access to depositating licenses so that the business could refinance itself better. So we got five depositating licenses activated, listed the business in Frankfurt, raised over $100 billion. But unfortunately, in 2018, I had a bit of a, you know, strategic difference of opinion with the founder. Mm -hmm. For that period, 2015, 2018, I was based in, in Johannesburg, South Africa. So I left in 2018. That's when I then started thinking initially really focused on building out the credit scoring tech, the risk management tech, build a tech solution. We actually still have, you know, a few clients that are building that business unit as, as fractal labs, where we provide software as a service. But mm -hmm. the reality was that a lot of our clients or, or actually not clients, prospective clients. We struggled integrating with them because they didn't have active data warehouses. Their digital flow was interrupted. So even if they had an agency app, which many, many did not, then they would basically have an agency app, which would store in an agency system. And from there, you'd have actually someone in the branch taking that info and put it into the next system. So it, it was very hard to actually run digital scoring or automation of that. So that's where in 2019, we then decided myself together with my co-founder and partners on the right. It's better for us to actually buy microfinance entities and, and really do this ourselves end to end and actually scale financial services to the client. Because if we have to wait till microfinance houses get there, it'll take too long. And then that's really mm -hmm. where the turnaround private equity approach came from. Now, I think at the same time, we mainly did that because we realized we don't want to do digital transformation and consultancy because if you're a consultant, you, there's no scaling of your mm -hmm. labor or effort. You just get paid mm -hmm. by the hour. So both right. those entities turned them around and then I was still based remote. I was actually staying in Singapore, 2018, 2019, and just traveling. Mm -hmm. But through COVID-19 in 2020, that became you know, very restrictive and problematic. So December, 2020, right. we moved to Cape Town. So we effectively have two hubs, South Africa, where I'm based mm -hmm. and then Nairobi, where my apartment on the right is based. Fantastic. So you basically were running this business from Singapore, at least was your partner local, was he on the continent or were you both remote? No, he was always in Nairobi. So he was always on the ground in Nairobi. And then, yes, I was, but the period I was running that you know, remote for mostly was when we were running a software as a service business, more mm -hmm. so than an actual financial services business. So the mm -hmm. second we then decided to go B2B to C and actually run on the ground financial services operation, that was also a big part of, of the reason for, you know, relocating and make sure we were based close to the operations. Fantastic. And, and, um, I'm sure. I find this a, such a fascinating approach in terms of how you've entered venture building and there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's such a, it's such a hedged position that you have taken because you're basically for, for want of a better term, not having to build the zero to one, which is usually the most notorious part of actually venture building. And now just saying, okay, fine, there is an operation in place. How do we optimize, digitize and scale this thing? So, uh, huge fan of what you're doing. So is this something that you saw while you are Africa Development Corporation or where did the insight come from? So I think it's something we've seen over, over the last sort of decade. I think getting licenses in Africa can take an incredibly long time. If you apply Greenfield, right. you can be frustrated. If there's an right. acquisition and a, there is a standard regulatory approval process that you just go through with set timeline. So 
from an expansion strategy for Africa, I think M&A is just a better tool often than greenfield applications. And then I think even before I started working in Africa, I worked as a consultant in the uh, restructuring space in, in Germany. So we've always been very active on the turnaround space. So for us, that's definitely a, you know, preferred way of, it's, it's a skill set we have, and I think a skill set we can definitely, you know, put to work well. This doesn't always mm. make it easier, but the nice thing is if you get it right successfully, it immediately has scalable impact because, you know, you're not doing something small, but you're adding meaningful dollar revenues uh, to the business. And sustainability is, is very high for us. So we want to make sure we scale profitably. Considering our financial services, the regulatory capital is a relevant factor. So we don't want to erode our capital base. We want to ensure that our capital base is preserved so we can leverage our capital and use it to you know, generate funding to lend out, which means that profitability is key. And if you want mm -hmm. to build a fintech platform profitably, you need scale quickly. Because if you don't have scale right. quickly with the rising cost of developers, you just can't pay for the right debt. Exactly. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. So you said the skill sets on, on you guys have the skill sets on, on, on this strategy, right? What are some of the skill mm. sets that are required to be effective in this turnaround model, especially in a market like Africa, which is distinct than other markets, I would say, in, in unique ways? So I think, first of all, it's your ability to, to basically analyze cost structures, processes, and, and, and immediately look for optimized cost structure strategies. It's then basically transparency and consistency throughout and effectively implement that turnaround strategy successfully. Ultimately, it's important you do cut deep enough because if you don't cut deep enough, you're in perpetual turnaround mode, which is obviously bad for morale and it's also bad for performance. And then we just have a, a very wide network of, of operational bankers and operational people that we can bring in to senior management layers if need be to basically assist with on the ground turnarounds. Because culture is culture and, and operational performance are really set to the top of an organization. So when we go into a new entity or a new country, it, it starts with the, this, the CEO, they're under is the management layer, and they all need to lift that same vision, roll up their sleeves, work hard, drive operational synergies. And oftentimes you'll find that some of the layers below that actually start picking up if there is a change in leadership effectors. So I think that's where for us, we can make quick decisions. We've taken decisions before. And I think people that do a turnaround the first time, they're often afraid to make those decisions because they're difficult. And if you get them wrong, it could obviously feel like it would have disastrous impacts. But what people often forget is that not taking decisions could be equally disastrous because if you keep burning cash or incurring costs, if you don't change when you need to, you might never actually change. That's true. Difficult decisions, because this is, it, at the end of the day, it comes down to driving cost efficiency and operational efficiency usually means, like you said, cutting deep. And usually that usually means human capital and, and, and all that. So when you talk about difficult decisions, maybe elaborate on what you mean by that. What are the nth level difficulty of decisions that you do in your... So obviously there's different ones, right? It's on, on the group level, it's when to invest heavier in debt when to build out what products and functionality, because at the end of the day, we all would love to scale revenues first before scaling costs, but that isn't always possible because of where in the past, a lot of investment was physical. Now a lot of investment is in people. So I think you need to really hire the best people, invest in those people, and that comes with a cost budget. So that's oftentimes difficult is when to speed that and when to slow that. And most importantly, you know, who to hire so you get efficient structures. When it comes to the turnaround side of things, I think it's really about prioritizing the business perspectives. 
above the personal perspectives, because ultimately all those people, all those individuals, they oftentimes have families, they've been with the organization a long time, but we right. need to do what's right for the company, which sometimes means separating from people, moving. And I think it's not always bad. It also gives people an opportunity to focus on things they're potentially better at than what they were currently doing. But it's never easy basically making a decision for two reasons. One is there's a personal side to it. You don't want people to lose their job. And the second is if people fulfill the role in an organization, you're never a hundred percent sure that role is truly redundant. So there's ultimately two types of, 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 of sort of, you know, redundancies in the turnaround. There's people that didn't have the skill set and mm -hmm. aren't performing or aren't really, you know, great at what they do. And those are the easier ones in a way, because ultimately it's really their own doing. But then there's often fat in operational structures. So there's maybe too many managers in a pyramid and too many people actually rolling up their sleeves and, and doing the work. So at that point in time, you end up letting people go because you think that they're actually redundant in the structure because their two IC could just pick up and do that work rather than being managed. And that's, it's always a risk, right? Whether that person below will truly pick up and do the work. But I think for us, that's where the real synergies lie because you need to effectively cut down structures. There's too many small businesses that have big company management structures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, have to, I would love to dig into so many things here in regards to how you pick your companies, your prospects, how you look at them. But I want to get to that later. What I want to do right now is dive into a little bit more of your background because it's quite fascinating. It's very varied. It reminds me of the last mm -hmm. uh, conversation I had with Eric Oya of uh, Planet 42. Do you happen to know who? I know of Planet 42. I don't know him personally, I think, but I think they, they used to be called Get Car, if I, call correct, if I recall correctly. I, didn't know about, I don't know about what they were called before. I, I had him on the podcast last week. The, okay. the, the similarity between you guys is the variability of your background and your, and your uh, LinkedIn profiles and how you've left your first job, yeah, call, call center agent. Right. Mm -hmm. And all the way up to you, you were at, uh, CEO at my box and now founder of, uh, co-founder at Finclusion. And I just thought this was fascinating. Call center agent, you founded Managers United, which is a championship football online gaming solution. And then you were at Lehman Brothers for, for three months in 2008. No way, maybe why that was such a short stint. And all the way up. Looking at your background, like how did you, what did you want to do when you grew up? How did you start at a call center? Did you have an idea of what you, where you wanted to go, take your life, some things you were interested in, who are your heroes? What were you trying to be in life? I think for me, when I, I started, I, I'd always had an interest in, in business, in, in financial services. Uh, I think the banking space was always intriguing, obviously studying in the period of sort of 2005, 2008. That was specifically also a time where investment banking was on the high until it wasn't anymore. So that was right. very much always in the pursuit. And then I think during my studies, I've always worked on the side. So I did a number of internships. I, I worked you know, uh, with the tax authorities in, in their, in their foreign call center, really just to stay busy, to learn. And I've always been a preferred learning through working than, than through studying. I think started working in the restructuring space, uh, which is very exciting, very diverse as a consultant. But I think what I missed at the time was, was that ability to really be in the decision-making side of things. As a consultant, ultimately you're always dependent on whether or not management really takes your advice. So from there, I moved into the ADC role where we were taking a principal investment role, which was interesting because we could really push operations to, to basically follow through, make strategic decisions. But at the same time, I think there was still sometimes that frustration about not being able to control the journey. And I think that changed, mm. obviously, as a manager initially, where you can really drive your journey, do what you believe in, and, and see how it works out. 
And as a founder and entrepreneur, that's even more so the case where you ultimately have much more controllable variables rather than uncontrollable variables. So you can take real responsibility and really be personally responsible for where you get to and, and what you can deliver and do. So I think that was, yeah, for me, the, the exciting thing. Got it. Got it. Okay. And I'm trying to track back. When you talk to founders who launch companies, Greenfield Opportunities, there's always like the initial day zero, day one, where it's an idea and maybe they're building it out. In your case, what was that like? Because was it an acquisition that you were like, okay, this is the company, the business we're going to actually do as our first turnaround play? What was day one like for you guys no, so, or how so, did you look? So day that? one was building the tech. So from 2018 to end 2019, the first sort of 12 months, we were only investing in the credit scoring solution, a risk management solution, getting clients. So their day one was very much looking at, okay, what's the middle end solution we have to build out? How do we get people signed up? So that was more traditional mm -hmm. function of, of scaling up and, and building a business. And it was exciting. It was really just building up what we, we had been a user before that operated in the lending and microfinance right. space. So it's saying, mm -hmm. what are the tools that I wish I would have been able to use and building those tools uh, and then looking at who could use those. I think. The biggest frustration with that was just how quickly we scale the, the revenues. When we realized, look, this is going to go, but it's going to go slow. Let's make it go quicker. We started looking for, for the right opportunities to acquire, but acquiring is always opportunistic. So for us, the buy and build strategy, we want to buy businesses, but not at all costs. So they need to be, you know, good investments, not just good turnaround cases, meaning the price also needs to work. So that's mm -hmm. why Tanzania, we went in Greenfield because we, you know, didn't see the right opportunity at the time. But yeah, day one was, I guess, still typical startup, really hashing things together. But we quickly raised capital and, and scaled up, which I think brings away, brings with it other challenges. But obviously, mm -hmm. I guess, mean shared less of some of the existential you know, challenges where you don't know if you're going to be able to pay your bills next week. We employ uh, over 200 people today in the group. In that sense, we're quite sizable for a business that, that's only a few years. So was it always... You always knew you were going to do a build and buy strategy or did that evolve as you were building your credit scoring model and you're like, yeah, we got to scale this faster. It's better to do a buy and build versus Greenfield. Yeah, or? so I think initially, so well, so initially we had actually just building the software and just scaling the software from a revenue model and not mm. actually be in the direct lending space, direct banking space ourselves. So mm. we wanted to be, our initial view was we could maybe just be a tech provider. And I think that's where we learned that it didn't scale the way it wanted. We also couldn't control the user journey. We could put in put tools into the MFIs, but we couldn't control how they use them. So we realized, no, we want to control the entire journey and make sure we truly transform how financial services are done on the continent. And then mm -hmm. the second we decided to do that, we're quite quick to say, look, we want to do this buy and build. I've seen in my box, we had an expansion strategy driven partial acquisitions. We bought four banks in ADC. We obviously bought a number of businesses. And even if you look at many of the successful African banking stories, and then I'm thinking EcoBank, I'm thinking UBA, I'm thinking Access Bank, Bank ABC, up until we sold it to Edmund Smara, you'll actually find that most of them were built out of buy and build strategies because mm -hmm. the time you save is massive. And that Makes time sense. to market is, is critical because opportunities mm -hmm. can be temporal in nature. And mm -hmm. I think specifically in Africa, where today still a lot of people are unbanked or underbanked, you want to try win customers trade off the bet. You don't want to try mm -hmm. and have to take them off more people. Makes sense. Yeah. So at some point you got this insight, you're like, okay, we need to, this is the strategy we're going to take. So what was that timeline between, you know, building the software and making that decision? How long were you in that, 
you know, software development cycle and then making the decision to take uh, your go to market is going to be basically an acquisition play. What was our timeline? We, we basically build out the, the MVP solutions on the credit scoring and credit decisioning side. So, so all of that was working and uh, yeah. So basically, um, so that was about a year and a half in, but at that time the software was all working. It then mm. that we had to build the older modules thereafter, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so how did you fund that, that, that one and a half years? What was that? How did you move into this direction? Cause you, you were coming from my box. I think, you know, that was a salary position. Did you have a financial windfall? How, how did you fund the initial phases? It was this before? the initial phases. It was a bit of savings, a couple of initial angel investors early on. And then we went to raise more private equity capital quickly thereafter. Interesting. So you approached private equity, not venture. You understand it was, it the, the model or? Private individuals. Well, so we, it was all mm -hmm. high net worth. So okay. it was not your, your typical venture, your typical institutional capital, but high net worth. And mm -hmm. it was just based on past relationships. We've worked with them before. They, they did well. And we, we just felt that was the, the right strategy for us, if that makes sense. And, and, and uh, I guess, cause your model is, is quite unique. Relationships help when it comes to fundraising. If you've worked with them before, it, it, it makes sense. What they did, what do they see? In what you guys were doing? Was it the team? Was it the strategy? How did you, how were so, you able to get people? So, yeah. So I think the people we raised money from, it was very much the team. We have a track record of turnarounds, of, of raising capital, of building on the African continent. We're actually, we sold ABC successful to Atlas Myers. There's not that many exits on the African continent. I think even if you look in the fintech space, I think Paystech is obviously a, a fantastic example, but otherwise if you look wider, there's very few, uh, yeah people that really successfully exited and sold business. And we have sold that before we have capital markets experience. We can also list businesses. So I think that was really the core of, of what we're doing. And then I think we're clear about what we're going to do with the money. We're clear about being focused on, on building a sustainable impact business, but also about doing something that was going to be impactful on the continent and then being impactful for people. Uh, and I think that was also quite critical because ultimately I think when people invest in Africa, it's not just about the money. It's also about what impact you make on, on driving financial inclusion on the continent and really changing things around and, and making a better world out there. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So maybe walk us through the different stages that your business has gone through. Like, of course, there was the software building stage and then maybe your first acquisition uh, of your first kind of entity. Yeah, so What's that process been like? So, 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 so obviously for everyone, the, 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 the thing that was completely unusual is that COVID completely turned everything around, right? So we built a software, did that in 2018, largely beginning of 2019. End of 2019, we bought the first businesses, spent three months turning them around. And uh, I think it was about February, March, 2020, we thought we were ready to, to now start growing those balance sheets and really mm -hmm. deploy the tech, double our loan book. We'd lined up that funder interest. And then suddenly COVID hit, restrictions came, but initially we thought, look, this is temporal. And before we were one, one and a half years further. So we had to right. completely pivot, but mm -hmm. we quickly mm -hmm. made a call to focus on capital preservation, asset preservation, tightened our lending standards, pushed forward collection initiatives. We're very proud to have kept our collections constant throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. So we didn't have a material drop like many others in collections, but that also meant that on the counter, we didn't really grow during that period. So that was a... In a very weird period from Q1 2020 for about 12 to 15 months till mid 2021, where right. continuously you were hoping that the end of this was nearing, 
and then the next wave hit and the next response came. And it's only now in the in, yeah, sort of the second half of 2021, beginning of 2022, where we're really starting to see that recovery. So mid-2021, we then had successfully you know, stabilized everything, wanted to grow. But some of the funders that, that obviously we pushed out, you know, there were now discussions that had be restarted. People had moved on. Some businesses did no longer want to take certain risks. So mm-hmm. it was only at the end of 2021 that we raised $20 million of debt from Lendable, Kenyan-based emerging market funds. We were very grateful for their support, but obviously that delayed our, our growth direction quite a bit. So 2021, we were very much ensuring to keep our loan book growing. We grew at about 35% of the end, despite not having a, you know, funding available. 2022, now a funding is available. We can at least grow. But our biggest market today is Kenya, and Kenya has elections upcoming in August. There you go. Yeah. That's right. We are all waiting for it, actually, with, uh, with bated breath. But I think it's going to be a smooth one. Knock on wood. Go ahead. It's, so, so, I, so I hope so. The challenge, is whether, the, the challenge is leading up to that, there's always a degree of uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't want mm-hmm. to now go and aggressively grow your logbook into uncertainty. Because right. when you're right. in the credit space, uncertainty is never good. I guess never. when you're in any mm-hmm. space. You, any so, space, but, but specifically... Consumer credit is probably, actually, any type of need, credit, but maybe businesses are more, 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 more safer. Well, but go ahead. Exactly. But we need our money back, right? Yeah. When you're in normal, in normal commerce, when you sell, you sell, it's gone. But in lending, right. this bursting is easy. Collecting is hard. So right now, we're driving growth in some of our older markets. We're very positive that Kenyan mm-hmm. elections will go well. And when I say go, I don't really care who wins. We're politically agnostic. To us, it's about... <laughs> No violence, no interruptions stability. to businesses, stability, mm-hmm. just easygoing. So we truly hope that'll be the case. Then I think we'll see significant growth in September onwards. But unfortunately, operating in Africa, some of these things do matter. And then I think the rest of this year is really about growing the underlying loan book. So we want to basically drive up our financial asset book. And at the same time, start preparing a capital raise probably at some point this year, just to also start funding further geographic expansion. We'd like to go into Uganda. We'd like to go into Mozambique, as well as upgrading our product mix. So we're still on the lending only side, but it's always been our strategy to over time, not just do credit, but also do savings, insurance, and other products. So one of the things we want to do towards the end of this year is starting to look at upgrading at least one or two of the licenses to start being able to give those additional services and products out and, and grow that as well. So I think that's where, yeah, that's where we are today. States we've mm-hmm. gone through. It's been exciting, but the big excitement still to come. It's I really hope that now we won't have any further waves or, or interruptions that we can just focus on business. Fantastic. So in Kenya, Kenya is your biggest market. Maybe you, you said your best market. What was the entry strategy? Which did you acquire a brand and kind of just put the tech in there? So, was that your strategy? And has the brand we, retained that name or have you rebranded? How does that work sure no so we bought a we bought an existing small business but we rebranded it completely put in some new human capital put in the tech i think kenya we focus on speed so we try to be faster and we try to operate in a market gap where not everyone else operates to basically be able to resecuritize assets and then give people credit time over time again to really focus mm. on repeat business i think kenya is an exciting market because by partnering with mpesa or partnering is a big word by utilizing mpesa you can right. instantly disperse, right? So effectively, mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. has a digital money source. So on top of that, it means that most people, even on lower income levels, et cetera, use Mbessa, not cash. So the mm-hmm. data set you have by scoring on the back of Mbessa statements becomes incredibly rich. And that's something you don't have in many other markets. 
because in many other markets, cash is still too prevalent. Right. And then it's a single statement, single integration. If you, when we do the same in Tanzania, we need to operate with three mobile network operators, all of which have some market share, none of which are interoperable. So the second that happens, it now already becomes very much more so complicated to actually operate in these countries. Yeah. Yeah. I guess having a monopoly is good and bad in some ways. So we, we yeah, M-Pesa makes things seamless and, and, and efficient if you're going to build on top of their reels. So yeah, this is fascinating. So do you guys, what, what kind of lending do you do? And who's your target audience? Do you, who's your target market? What, do you, what, do you, what kind of money do you give out? And what, how does that work? No, that's, uh, that makes more sense. So basically we do two things really, right? So we, we distribute through partners. We really focus on, on people that have income, whether formal or informal. And what we do is we basically really focus on really today, unfortunately, the top 20% in the market, anyone earning sort of 300 dollars upwards. We then distribute either through employers where we give people either wage access or payroll lending products, or we, you know, distribute through dealerships, distributors, merchants, and either fund those merchants or dealers or fund their ultimate, oftentimes then through security instruments, either on the back of motorbikes, cars, vehicles. So on the employer side, a lot of it's obviously education, school fees, but also sometimes consumption, home improvement, cars. Then on the other side, a lot of it is actually small business oriented. So specifically in Kenya, what we'll often find is that people will use their vehicle to access credit. But then they use the credit to basically execute on contracts. So basically, someone basically secures a contract to deliver goods and services, whether to a government, mm-hmm. Paris state, or a big company, but they don't have the money to do it. So right. now they need to actually fund that trade. But that trade, there's a big amount of time pressure. So by using their assets, they can then transact with us and we can help them you know, facilitate that. And once we've done that successfully once, we then push and, and try and drive for them to use us, uh, you know, repeatedly, if that, if that mm. makes sense. Mm. No, it makes sense. Facilitating the, what do we call it here? I forget, I forget what we call it, but tenderpreneurs is what we call it, which is an interesting market. You, you mentioned school fees. How does that work? Because that's a very consumer kind of credit thing. Do you have examples that you do that in Kenya? Because we actually have an education institution that, that could use that service. So, so tell me more about that. So it's, it's really true employer partnership. So we partner with the employer, the employer withholds the installments from salary, and then we fund the decline and the client basically as a result can pay the school fees into installments. A lot of schools, whether professional education, primary schools, high schools, don't offer installment payment options in, on, on the continent. So people have to pay up front. And especially uh-huh. when people have multiple kids, they don't have that capacity. So it's right. been one of the biggest user funds. We in South Africa, we, for instance, also partnered with some educational institutions where we basically offer the product with them. Uh, mm-hmm. But it becomes more difficult because the educational institutions, they don't want to link, you know, allowing people to start the next year, getting their actual degree to repaying credit. So if we collect via the employer, then the educational institute as a result, you know, can really just focus on education and doesn't have to put in place measures to help protect our repayment. But mm. I think it's, there's a big need for it. I think anything that pushes education is good. And I think one of the things that, that, that oftentimes people don't realize is it's not just about the cost of credit. Obviously cost of credit needs to be reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. You have to charge mm-hmm. people stuff that, that that's affordable, but most important is access people being able to access the, the capital, people being able to actually put their kids into school because if there's no access. Then no matter what you do, people can't actually improve their lives. So sometimes it's better to pay 
a higher price initially as a consumer or an SME, but start getting access, build a credit track record and lower your cost over time and not having access to begin with. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So we, like I said, we have a professional development institution called Jenga school. So Jenga school is basically tech skills focused on data science mm -hmm. and AI. And we have a lot of demand, but the conversion to, to enrollment is always a challenge because of that cost and it's nominal compared to what folks pay in other markets in, in Europe and, and, and the, the US. And so this credit problem or, or access to education is a huge deal. And we need to give people access to the type of funding that can enable them to, to develop themselves and, and uh, increase their earning potential. It's such a conundrum for us. Where, where do you see most of your customers coming from? Is it primary, secondary education? Is it professional development? How's that mix for you guys? Sure. So it depends a bit by market. So we see a lot of school fee funding where the parents are effectively the ones taking out the credit. And then we're looking sort of high school education predominantly. A certain of our markets, there's a big belief of, of having to go to the right private school, to go to the right private right. primary school, private, private high school. So school fees start early. Right. So let's forget specifically, we do also quite a bit of professional education. It's, it's still oftentimes something that individuals have to fund themselves. So companies won't per se fund it. Mm -hmm. And we'd be very happy to, to have a, a discussion on whether there's something we could do to help Jenga schools to, to scale further, especially data science. I guess the attractive thing is that should then give quite good employment perspectives in the current sort of environment it's, it's market. Uh, totally, yeah. Yes, especially, so we are focused on data science and software engineering and very high quality, rigorous program, and not trying to just add more numbers, but adding quality as, as well as the numbers. So yeah, we'd love to take that, that offline and explore that. Mm -hmm. We already have some relationships with some local banks, financial institutions, but I think there's so much more that can be done. And I like your idea about integrating this through employers. The other challenge is a lot of the, especially in the software side, the people we work with, we, we take computer science grads and basically get them ready for the world of work in a very uh, rigorous six-month program. So they don't, they're not employed yet. So you have that conundrum where on this side, mm. the liquidity and the, and the value of their talent is in so much demand that they can actually afford to do this. But you've got this six-month, 12-month window that they have to fund. Uh, it's, it's just an interesting model. So yeah, let's take that no, offline right, and explore. So, yeah, so definitely. And I think in general, what I would say, and, and that's what, the, what, what gives rise to the opportunity, not just for us, but on many of the FinTech players, is that mm -hmm. when you look at the African continent, banks aren't really focused on individual clients. And even when they have products on individual clients, customer service is terrible. Even <laughs> if you have a job and you have totally. everything, you right. can't get a loan in a week or a few days, right? Everything right. takes three, four weeks. People need quicker turnaround. People need access. People need that level of trust. And for the banks, they've never really focused on creating very attractive MSME individual products. Because relative mm -hmm. to total profit contribution for the balance sheet of the bank, it's often not meaningful or per se relevant for them. And they'd right. rather focus on the corporate banking relationships first, maybe some private banking. It's unless you actually have a title deed, it's just hard to get any money out of any financial institution on the African continent as an individual. And let's say you have a title deed and actually you can get the money, you still can't get it fast. And if right. you're able to give people consistent access to credit quickly in a convenient way, I think that's how you can really win a client base on the continent. And we see it in our customers. We see even customers with good salaries that might be able to get bank products. They prefer working with us because we quick, we turn around and, and we do what we can to further improve that journey for people over time. Because I think the easier it is for people to access credit, the more likely they're to use you.
Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's it's been a source of consternation and frustration for us because we are sitting in this tech talent gap that is so potent on this other side, and we have so much talent coming in, but they can't make it to class because, you know, uh, of that you know nominal cost of of the fees. But anyway, we'll solve it, and we're excited about it. Go back to a little bit of your fundraising. So last year you raised twenty million dollars. I was looking at your TechCrunch article. Counted fourteen investors just based in that article, and I was like, wow. Uh, your cap table must be quite busy. And I noticed E from uh, Andela and Flatterway was part of your Ozone cap table. And I came across this other name of Jonathan Dorr. Just wondering, is this John Dorr of Kleiner Perkins or is this some other Jonathan Dorr on your cap table? No, he's a, he actually worked with Jumia Nigeria as our founder himself, building a very exciting business in the Middle East in an unrelated space. We've always, so, so basically for us, that, that capital raise was partially debt, partially equity. But for us, we see that the cap table also as an instrument to start building relationships, get people more involved and help us scale right. and grow in different right. markets in Africa. Rather than, than having to, to try and convince people to be advisors or help you, if people invest, they'll naturally help you. So completely I agree. Yeah. That's where a busy cap table is not a problem if they're, if basically people understand their, their relative role. And I think all of our investors, they're very happy to be investors. They help us when we ask for help, but they're not trying to run the business. I think a busy cap table becomes problematic when, you know, management or the board is not focused themselves. And as a result, you almost end up having a, a variety of investors trying to run the business. But I think we have that alignment yeah. and, and that's where yeah. we're quite happy. But we've seen the challenges you've mentioned in all our businesses uh, from time to time. Yeah, yeah, you got to really manage expectations, so to speak. And uh, I actually run a venture capital fund. Apart from Impact Africa, I run uh, From Here Ventures. So mm. we just uh, did our first close. We actually last month and we're starting to invest for a $15 million fund, at least uh, seed oh, and, okay. pre-seed and seed stage. So look up From Here Ventures, send me your deck. Maybe you guys are cool. a little bit too far for us. We don't do any debt, but we definitely do equity. Yeah, so that's what's going on over there. And that's what I was curious about that. So you talked about debt and equity. And I was talking to one of our soon-to-be portfolio companies, and they were talking about how their debt investors had a requirement for them to raise a certain amount of equity to be mm. able to deploy the debt. So you have to have enough runway for the debt investment to make sense. Have you ever had a, come across that conversation in your capital structure and fundraising? Yeah, yeah I think so. Basically, this is not the first time we're building a financial services business. So I guess we, right. we came prepared, uh, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. But totally. ultimately... It's it, what I said earlier is the, the problem with raising debt in financial services is two ways, right? So you need runway and you need mm-hmm. first loss margin. So most debt funds will say, if you have a loan group of a hundred, I'll fund you anywhere between 50 to 90% of that in debt. And then 10 to 50% you fund in equity, depending on how comfortable they are with the credit risk you're taking. Now, mm-hmm. in lending, you always want, when you grow, your loan group grows, right? So you always need more money. So... Right. At the same time, if you're in a growth phase, oftentimes you might not be cash profitable. So if you have $5 million of equity today, but you're spending, say, half a million dollars per quarter, at the end of next quarter, your residual equity is only four and a half, right? And over Mm -hmm. a one-year period, you might have spent $2 million, your equity goes down from five to $3 million. So even though theoretically today you've raised $5 million, and let's say your advance rate 75%, you think, great. I can now draw down $15 million of debt. You can't because 12 months from now, out of that 5 million of equity, there's only $3 million left. So actually you could have only drawn three times three is $9 million of debt. 
So that's why avoiding capital erosion and, and basically planning your capital to grow, build up and ensuring you can cover your run rate is so important in financial services because you mm. almost need three pots of money. You need the debt to scale the loan book. You need mm -hmm. the equity to be the first loss piece of the loan book. And then you mm -hmm. need a certain cash cover to pay for some of your tech investment, run rate, and other components. Uh, and I think that's it. It never gets really prevalent how impactful that is until you operate at scale. When you're running a couple hundred thousand dollar notebook, you don't really notice those differences. But the second you start operating 10, 20, 30 million dollar notebooks, suddenly every million dollars of equity makes a four million dollar difference in notebook. And for wow. us, if we want to double our notebook, we also need to double our equity once we optimize or once we're on optimum scale. So, so those are things that, that I think you learn and yeah, it does make capital raising challenging because you feel like it's a chicken and egg sometimes. Equity funders right. will say, you should really be using debt to fund your loan book. And the loan book people are saying, you should really be used, where's the equity to back this up? When, once you get it right, you can scale, but until mm -hmm. you do, it can be hard. Yeah. Wow. You, you should definitely do a, a masterclass for this. I, if you're open to it, I'll teach you to our venture studio in back Africa to do, this is fantastic because it is, you come from the inside the industry. So like you said, you are prepared, but learning all this stuff as you're building Greenfield and you've never been in the industry would probably be very difficult. Wouldn't you say? I don't know if it's more, anything you do for the first time is very difficult, but there's definitely certain complexities on, on, on lending that, that people that, that come from other spaces don't per se see through. We're always right. happy to do it. And we believe in, in being part of the ecosystem, working with people. We try work with, with startups and, 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 and be engaged as well, because ultimately Africa is a massive market. So the more people that, that do financial service in Africa that build capacity that uplift well. All of us, we can build good businesses and make money in the current economic climate. But on a global level, the, the time we will start doing best is if Africa starts growing the same way that, you know, we've seen over the past decades in, in certain of the Southeast Asian markets, in certain of the Latin American markets. So we welcome any, anyone going into the space and always very happy to help where we can. Fantastic. Let's pivot to your organization and kind of, as we wind to the end of this Amazing conversation. This is fascinating. I've learned a lot. So organization building, you mm. mentioned your current headcount is 200. With your strategy, you operate independent opcodes in different markets, right? I imagine that's what your strategy looks like. So from, so your organization grows in lumps, it seems, right? You have the core mothership, I would imagine somewhere, is it in Cape Town? Why don't you describe for us how your org is structured and how it grows? So that's something we've been given a lot of thought and, and that sometimes has been challenging, uh, especially initially. So when we started, there was us as, as founders and then we had someone running each of the MFIs and, and we had someone running the tech. And what we started realizing over the last year is that as we wanted to go into more countries, that wasn't per se escape because lessons learned weren't rapidly, rapidly applicated exactly. across different industries. Right. And right. some solutions were built for a single market without ensuring they would be product fit all the markets. So we ended up building the same thing twice for slightly mm. different markets. So yeah. we basically actually rehashed that recently. So first of all, between myself and, and my partner, Tom Rai, we started splitting our, our responsibilities. So I focus a lot more on strategy, expansion, new markets, funding, treasury, and you really focus on day-to-day -day operations, product, innovation, tech, and scaling. And then we basically have created you know, a metric structure, which isn't as, as formal a metrics yet, but where First of all, there's, there's group functions so HR, tech, finance, that's driven from a group perspective, although there's employees in all the different operations and all of that centralized to ensure it's consistent through the group. 
And then mm -hmm. there is a metrics function that has every strong country has a country head. So we have someone for South Africa, someone for Kenya, someone for Tanzania that basically have to drive all the problems. But then mm -hmm. we also look at having center of excellence. Our South African head of collections is great. So that person will still also drive collection synergies and learning across the group. We basically, you know, have a strong risk guy in Kenya that then does effectively the same throughout the group. And mm -hmm. we also look at product champions across the group that don't have a leadership role because the people report up locally, but ensure lessons learned go out. Now, if we then go and go into a new market, let's say we'd open up Uganda, we'd acquire Uganda. We then look in and basically are able to, to utilize those product champions or core people from certain markets to go into those markets with us, help train the local people, look for gaps, do a gap analysis. And it means we don't per se have to hire the best and most experienced collection person in all the markets. We hire them in one, and then we can actually use younger talent and train them up internally in other markets. And I think mm -hmm. that that's for mm -hmm. us been the structure to scale, but mm -hmm. it's really been a lesson that we, you know, learn as we added more markets and then we had to respond to it. Next time we speak, I can, can obviously tell you if it's working. We're obviously positive that it will work, but it's even for us, it's learning as we do. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Fantastic. We have a very similar challenge, Venture Studio, because we have a very different approach in terms of how we build ventures. We don't take entrepreneurs. We take folks we call innovation fellows coming out of campus and we insert them into projects and, and we build. So over the last two, three years, we've been facing the same challenges, replicating no, no knowledge across the different projects and creating centers of excellence in, around go-to-market and engineering. It's just been, yeah. So I completely get it. And I think what you're doing is spot on. I would bet on it myself. So as we wind down here, so company culture, right? It's a very, do you have a bespoke company culture because you have operating op calls in different countries? How do you scale culture or do you let those in, in entities run their own kind of dynamics or how, how do you do that? So, so, so it's, it's actually been something we've struggled with. It's, so we, you naturally inherit cultures from businesses you acquire. And then right. especially during COVID, when there's a lot of remote where you know, there isn't as much physical interaction as we would like. It's sometimes difficult to, to integrate that. What we try mm -hmm. and do now is we've started doing virtual town halls on a group level. We've recently put the group HR structures in place to ensure that performance management is, is, is standard across the group. There'll always be a certain level of, of subcultures between the group. But I think for us, what's right. key is that we want to ensure that we have a culture that's transparent, where people mm -hmm. are, you know, aware which decisions are taken, why. But that's mm -hmm. also very performance focused. Ultimately, we want people to, you know, be passionate about what we do, but also to be really focused on, on driving operational performance and scaling, you know, and really adding value where they can. So be actively engaged in achieving the companies, working with other people, make sure integrity is 100%. Authenticity is important, but standing for what's right is also incredibly important. I think. It's one of the things that can be emphasized a lot because yeah. in Africa, probably more so than in other places, there's always situations. And I think one has to you know, stand by what's right throughout the principle. It doesn't matter whether it's small or big and then mm -hmm. enforce that because ultimately that culture of, of doing what's right will basically filter through the entire organization. And it's not always easy because it's not always the easy, but it's the long route. And I think that standing by the combination of integrity, people, and, and then basically focusing on performance and innovation are truly what speaks to, to what we believe in. And then it's leading by example, right? We have senior management closing the doors if they go in the office. We wake up and go to bed 
thinking of how we can grow this business and looking for people doing that with us, but we're not looking for people to doing that for us. And I think that's the, the biggest culture for us is really, we have to show first what we expect others to do, if that makes sense. Leading by example. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the last two sections here. So mistakes and lessons learned, you know, what would you do different if anything, right? What, what are some of the lessons you've learned and what would you have done different from day one of your venture of inclusion? Sure. So I think, and, and this is a bit of a tricky one, right? So I had a big mm. benefit of a great individual network, which allows us to start with individual investors only. I right. probably would have tried to get some institutional capital in early on, because I think that they may seem painful early on, and they probably are, but at the same time, when it comes to governance, structuring and scaling your business and getting access to future capital, having them on your cap table, then it takes away a lot of work going, going forward. So mm, I think makes sense. being very mm. strategic about the cap table and then focusing on the right early stage investors is, is probably something that I think, you know, should have a big amount of focus. And then, and this is a bit of a, a, a double-edged one, but probably raise more capital earlier. So we mm. were very focused on operations. We really mm -hmm. put our head down, took the capital we needed and built a $20 million loan book in, in over a short period of time. If I look back to, to how markets evolved over this period of time, I would have probably said we should have really doubled down on a single market, raised a lot of capital and then replicated across. But then mm. again, it's also a tricky lesson because at the same time, by focusing on operations, we have a business that can operate break even now. And even if, if cash flow situations get difficult, we're not forced to capital rents. So those are probably two of the, how do I say this? Yeah. On the capital side, things we've learned on the operational side, I think make, make difficult decisions even faster. If things are not fit not working, make changes. You need to get the right leadership in place right away. And mm -hmm. finding leadership is incredibly difficult for businesses in the startup mentality because you need people that are totally. entrepreneurial, but also have the mm -hmm. necessary skill set to take you further. I, mm -hmm. I don't need people that, that do what I say. I need people that independently think and take the business forward and, and can run with smart projects. So, so that hiring bit is hard. And I think mm -hmm. admitting when you didn't hire the right person, changing them out and, and putting the right person is always difficult. But you have to be ruthless and, and objective more than ruthless, yeah. actually objective and, and accurate and say, okay, if it's not working, it's not working. Get We're not a big business. Quick. Yes. Exactly. We can't yeah. afford to, to try. Yeah. Listen, I, I have one of our CEOs, one of our portfolio CEOs in our venture studio who's struggling with this <laughs> right now. And myself, I've struggled with it too. So we have a venture studio where we build things bottoms up. So we do, we've done. Quite, I've done quite a bit of hiring and a lot of my work is hiring and it is the most difficult lesson to learn. I'll tell you, man, because you're always not sure, like, what's the, how do I make this decision? How do I know it's the right one? How do I know it's the right time? Maybe one more chance. It's one of those things where, and every day you're getting closer to your grave. If you were to set one. Especially if, if people are willing, right? If people right. are not willing, I have that's no problem easy. letting them go. Someone that's right. not willing and is not motivated. I say, look, this is not working. But then right. someone that's working hard, they're putting the hours, the hard but one. you can see <laughs> that they're just not, they don't have the skill set to do the job. Right. Yeah. Like they, it's not that they're in general, but for that specific role. Right. Right. And then you have right. to say, look, it's not working, but you feel so bad because you see that, that they are giving, you know, 200% to make it work. 
But unfortunately, right. if it's not working, we can't afford to keep them because we don't have mm. enough money. If I was Upsa mm. or Barclays, I would just say, let's go try debt division. Let's go try debt division. <laughs> but now right. the challenge is in a small organization, the second you do that, you create a culture where people think, oh, if I'm totally. not performing, I'll just get moved to a different oh, room. Man. Which yes. is now problematic from a performance improvement perspective. So you have to say, look, it's not working yet. Your yeah. next role yeah. has to be at a different organization. But yeah, I, I, I struggle don't know if, with that. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever come across these people who are professionals at doing work as theater. They invest their time to appear as if they are working more than doing the work. And especially in a work from home environment, that has been notorious for us. I don't know if you've come across that personality, but man, it is also quite challenging because they just it's, do uh, enough and they feel the rest with appearing like that. Yes. So our biggest challenge in the work from home perspective, where especially if we didn't do hybrid is, uh, is moonlighting, right? It's, it's people that effectively take on extra assignments, work off the clock and <laughs> side hassles. And, and that's a problem because it takes away focus. So yes, they might totally. still be giving us eight hours a day, but they're not eight focused hours. They're, not, they're not getting their rent. And then they get a client call and, and it's been something that we've been, you know, actively addressing, but it's difficult because it's a, you'll see a lot of startup using freelancers. And I think as an ecosystem and an industry, we're all partially to blame, right? Even if we lose freelancers, we don't per se always do the necessary homework to make sure that freelancer isn't taking on too much work because tech talent and dev talent is so scarce. But I think that's a, a practice that, that definitely needs addressing on totally. the continent. i tell you what, man. <laughs> We're actually building uh, a startup talent network on Slack just to make sure we can identify the right type of talent mindset because it's so challenging to get it. If you get it wrong, it costs so much. All right, let's wrap it up here. Uh, Tim, I've really enjoyed the conversation. A uh, lot of lessons, a lot of cool insights. A rapid fire round here. So I'm just going to ask you three. I'm going to ask you three words or, or state three, three different words. And you just tell me what comes to mind first right off the bat. So the first one is Africa. So I think it's used an enormous potential for growth. Youngest continent in, in the world. Yeah. Amazing place. Entrepreneurship. Uh, it's falling and standing up. So it's uh, continuously trying till you get it right. Yeah. It's the most humbling experience. You just got to keep this perspective. Final one, 2030. So I think 2030, we want to be Africa's leading digital bank, having a, over a million active customers taking out loans and a widespread presence on the conference. You know, for us, that's the goal. Amazing. Good stuff. Listen, I've enjoyed this very much. I've learned a lot. And I want to thank you for taking the time to be the Chini Magic Podcast, Tim. Thank you very much. And yeah, I look forward to staying in touch and, and thanks for all the other discussions offline.